Good morning. In today's headlines, latest updates on the Israel-Hamas war as it enters its fourth day. Find out how the U.S. is responding. House Republicans are racing to pick a new speaker. Can they choose a speaker in time to send aid to Israel? Who is backing Hamas? Are Iran and Hezbollah ready to join the battle as Hamas leaders claim? We bring in an expert to give us the details. President Biden and special counsel Robert Hur wrapped up a two-day interview about classified documents. We have the latest on the investigation. San Francisco police shoot a driver who plowed into the lobby of the Chinese consulate. We have the details. Hamas terrorists have taken civilian hostages in Israel. A desperate mother pleads for the safe return of her daughter. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, October 10th. Well, uh, reportedly, Israel is now blocking or reducing the food water supplies going to Gaza. Yeah, and Hamas terrorists are now threatening to kill a hostage every airstrike that Israel launches on Gaza. That's right, and we are, well, hopefully they can resolve this conflict, but for now, we still have updates on the latest conflict there. Um, President Biden will deliver remarks from the White House today. Earlier today, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terror group declared two of its members were fatally shot by Israeli forces after crossing into Israel from Lebanon on Monday. Defense Department officials say the Pentagon has offered the help of U.S. Special Forces for surveillance and planning rescues. A senior Hamas leader said yesterday Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah are ready to join the battle if Israel retaliates in force and denied their direct involvement in the attack. Israel has imposed what it calls a complete siege of the Gaza Strip with a land, air and sea blockade. All food, water, electricity and fuel to the area has been cut off. Israel says its defense forces have regained control over all of its communities with fighting along the Gaza border. The IDF has brought up 300,000 reserve troops in preparation for a ground war in the Gaza Strip. The attack has killed at least 11 U.S. citizens. It's an estimated 150 Israelis that have been kidnapped, most of them civilians. Hamas has warned it will kill a hostage every time Israel bombs civilian homes in Gaza without warning. A Hamas spokesperson said the executions would be broadcast live. And for more on this, to dive in deeper, we're bringing in Dor Levinter, live right outside of Tel Aviv. Um, so good to see you, Dor. Yeah, good um, to see you. So what are the updates overnight? What can you tell us? Well, the battles still continue. Israel mostly struck from the air and uh, still trying to clear all the terror uh, attacks and terrorists inside the southern uh, cities of uh, Israel. And uh, that's the situation right now. So how is Israel? Because we just heard um, Hamas, for example, threatening to publicly execute those hostages if um, Gaza is being bombed without warning, and also Gaza being such a densely populated place. How is Israel responding in this case? How is uh, how is Israel dealing with this? Okay, so Israel cannot negotiate on hostages. There is no one to negotiate with. Right now Israel is trying to push Hamas, to hurt Hamas as much as possible. In a few days we, we would probably see a ground attack too. 
uh, getting inside Gaza, but there is no real negotiation until Hamas, uh, from Israel perspective, will beg to do negotiation uh, on those hostages. There is nothing really to do here. And so before that, Israel is just warning before they launch any attack? No, there, there is nothing like that. So since Israel declares war, we are, it's a whole new ballgame. There is no warnings. The warnings are uh, like a global warnings. Get out of Gaza, get out of this entire area. But there is no procedure of uh, warning for specific place or a, a specific building. The, the, the warning is get out of Gaza now, go to the Rafiach passage, go south, go to Egypt. That's uh, what Israel is trying to do to steer all civilians from Gaza outside. So some media, for instance, are reporting and saying that Israel for, blocked the exit out of Gaza. So what can you tell us about that? Uh, I, I believe it's a complete nonsense. It's mostly propaganda of Hamas. Israel would never do that because it's in Israel's interest to drive out all civilians out of Gaza because of international pressure. There is no need for that for Israel. They want to attack freely. Uh, what's happening is that Palestinians uh, are going south. They are going to Egypt. But Egypt, actually, we saw this, uh, this morning on the Cairo TV of Egypt, formal uh, Egypt uh, uh, saying that Israel should be warned to not send civilians to Egypt. They don't want them there. The Egypt uh, economy is down. They don't want a flood of, uh, of refugees and terrorists coming in the country. But that's actually Israel's interest. So there is no need to, to bomb any passage. Uh, but although that, there are fights near the passages. And that's probably what you're going to see on TV and videos. I see. And I want to go back to um, something you said earlier that right now there is no negotiations also uh, about the hostages. So I understand that you had also uh, interviewed survivors of the day of the attack. So what did they tell you? Yeah, I interviewed survivors and fighters as one. Uh, survivors, it's, 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 heart, it's heartbreaking. They say it's, it's, it's the Holocaust story all over again. They just came to butcher unarmed people, people with kids, with, with, with babies, just uh, stayed inside rooms and, and prayed to God that no, nothing will, uh, will happen. But they had no control. And it happened over hours by hours because the situation was so chaotic. So the, the armed forces couldn't get there on time. There were so many places at once. We're talking about more than 1,000 terrorists probably, uh, all at once, coming to many towns and do it, doing this all at once. So they had to defend themselves and trying to run. Many families didn't make it. Mm. Well, really heartbreaking stories from both sides. So thank you so much, Dora Levinter, for bringing us these stories. Thank you. It's been three days since a brutal assault was launched on Israel by the Hamas terror group with at least 11 Americans now confirmed dead in the attack, NTD's Daniel Monahan takes a look at the U.S. response and the reactions of lawmakers. President Biden says the American people stand shoulder to shoulder with Israelis. We'll make sure that they have the help their citizens need and they can continue to defend themselves. 
Biden issued a statement on Monday saying at least 11 American citizens were among those killed in the brutal terror attack and that more are likely being held hostage by the Hamas terror group. One of the Americans murdered was Deborah Matthias. She was shot and killed by Hamas terrorists while shielding her teenage son from their bullets. Her husband was also killed. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said on Monday that military assistance is on the way to Israel. He did not specify what kind of equipment was being sent. A senior Defense Department official addressed their capacity to expand production and pay for such munitions. We need additional support from Congress, so I hope we'll see that soon. A new House speaker could help that along. One candidate, Representative Steve Scalise, addressed U.S. support for Israel on Monday. This is a dangerous world right now. Uh, let me say it again, we stand strongly with Israel. Scalise is competing against House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. Here's Jordan on Fox News. We need to give Israel the time, the space, the resources so that they can win and win decisively and send a message to these evil people who did this. Senator Marsha Blackburn is calling on President Biden to freeze the $6 billion ransom payment to Iran immediately, speaking on Fox News. Iran has been instrumental in playing a role in coaching and directing and giving the green light to Hamas to carry this out. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Sunday he ordered the Ford Carrier Strike Group to sail to the eastern Mediterranean to be ready to assist Israel. It is the Navy's newest and most advanced aircraft carrier. Its approximately 5,000 sailors and deck of warplanes will be accompanied by cruisers and destroyers in a show of force. The Israeli military says such naval deployments close to Israel may stave off any regional escalation. Meanwhile, gruesome discoveries continue on the ground in Israel. The rescue service retrieved over a hundred bodies from the small Israeli community of Bari near the border with the Gaza Strip on Monday. The kibbutz is among the worst hit of the 14 Israeli border communities overrun by Hamas terrorists on Saturday. The Israeli military says between 70 and 100 terrorists in or around Bari were killed. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The White House issued a joint statement on Israel along with France, Italy, Germany and the UK. It expresses unified support for Israel and condemnation of the actions of Hamas. The statement said the nations will support Israel in its efforts to defend itself. It also warned countries hostile to Israel against exploiting the situation. The statement recognized legitimate aspirations of Palestinians, but stated clearly that Hamas didn't represent such aspirations. The countries will remain unified as friends of Israel with the ultimate goal being peace in the Middle East. Coming up, the House is in turmoil as the Republican Party struggles to find a new speaker. Will they elect a new leader in time to send critical aid to Israel? Special Counsel Robert Hur interviewed President Biden about unsecured classified documents. We have the latest information on the investigation. A driver plows right through a wall into the Chinese consulate, leaving more questions than answers. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announces he is running as independent 
and the GOP candidate announced he will drop out of the race. How will Kennedy's move affect his chances and a potential rematch between Biden and Trump? Hear the story after the break. Good to have you back. House Republicans have big days ahead. They're meeting to pick a new speaker after voting to oust Kevin McCarthy last week. But the House is divided, and that means no business until they get a leader, even if the business is Israel. Emily Schmidt reports on the dual pressure to get a house in order and to react to what's happening in the world. Kevin McCarthy began his Monday news conference talking about helping Israel. Now is the time for action. He said the same on his social media account, but the House can't act on anything until it finds his replacement. So while some House members are circulating a pro-Israel resolution, it is stuck in limbo with no leader. First thing I would put on the floor is the, is the uh, resolution on Israel. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan is running for speaker, as is House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. They're meeting behind closed doors, trying to get support, but there's no indication either has the 217 votes needed to win. Some speculate the former speaker could reclaim his position, a long shot he hasn't ruled out. The conference decides that. I don't decide that. The Hamas attacks on Israel show what else is now on the line. The Pentagon says it needs Congress to approve more money to help Israel and Ukraine simultaneously. The first speaker vote could happen as soon as Wednesday, with a lot more than leadership riding on the outcome. Meanwhile, President Biden wrapped up a two-day interview with special counsel Robert Hur yesterday. The interview was part of an investigation into Biden's handling of classified documents. The White House counsel's office says Biden's participation was voluntary. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed special counsel Her. His job is to look into improper storage of classified documents at Biden's Delaware home and an office set up after Biden's vice presidency. Others have also been questioned, including Biden's staff, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Biden previously said he was surprised by the discovery of classified materials and thought it would be judged as inconsequential. The White House declined to make further comments. Is the Biden administration enforcing immigration laws properly? A new congressional report says the administration is failing to remove over 99 percent of the illegal immigrants it released into the country. A report released Monday by the House Judiciary Committee compiled data from the Department of Homeland Security on the state of immigration enforcement. The report found between January 20th, 2021 and March 31st, 2023, there were over 5 million illegal immigrant encounters at the southern border. Over 2.4 million had no confirmed departure from the United States. This means they are likely still in the U.S. During the same period, DHS released at least 2.1 million illegal immigrants into the country. Less than 6,000 were actually removed from the U.S. after being placed in removal proceedings by an immigration judge. According to the report, that means the Biden administration failed to remove roughly 99.7% of the illegal immigrants it released into the country. And the report finds that only 6% were screened for fear of persecution for asylum purposes. 
The congressional report states, quote, because of the unprecedented border crisis, some immigration and customs enforcement officers have been forced to abandon arrests and removal of aliens to process the illegal aliens who have arrived at the southwest border. The committee says it will continue to conduct oversight of the Biden administration's immigration policies. Police in San Francisco fatally shot a driver who rammed his car into the Chinese consulate yesterday. Police say when officers arrived at the scene, they found a vehicle in the lobby of the building. Officers entered, made contact with the suspect, and an officer-involved shooting occurred. Officers rendered aid, and they had summoned paramedics from the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, and in spite of the life-saving efforts of the police officers, firefighter, paramedics, and personnel at the hospital. The suspect was later pronounced deceased uh, at the hospital. Police have not yet released the identity of the driver or determined the reason for the crash. There is no indication that anyone else was injured. The Chinese embassy said in a post that an unidentified person drove violently into the document hall of the consulate, posing a serious threat to the safety of staff and people at the scene. Turning now to the presidential race, we are beginning to see presidential candidates dropping out of the race. Republican Will Hurd on Monday said he's suspending his campaign. A former congressman from Texas, Hurd is the second Republican candidate to drop out. Hurd failed to qualify for the first two GOP primary debates. In a statement on X, Hurd said, In 14 short weeks, my team and I matched the accomplishments of many of the other candidates in the race who had significantly higher name ID and cash advantage. He said the GOP needs to consolidate around one person to defeat both former President Trump and President Biden. Hurd endorsed former Ambassador Nikki Haley, saying she articulates a different vision for the country than Trump and has an unmatched grasp on the complexities of U.S. foreign policy. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is leaving the Democratic Party. He's now running for president as an independent candidate. He made the announcement at an event in Philadelphia yesterday where he expressed how he hopes to stand up for dispossessed Americans. That ends his challenge to President Biden for the Democratic nomination. He said Americans are declaring independence, not just from the two parties, but from corruption, lobbyists, and media narratives. Kennedy plans to campaign in Texas, Florida, and Georgia later this month. His team says he will travel to many other locations to gain ballot access in every state. Now we take a closer look at Kennedy's independent run for president, how it will affect his chances and the plausible rematch between Trump and Biden. We're bringing in John Schweppe, the director of policy for the American Principles Project, to discuss this. He joins us live now. Good to have you with us, John. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Excellent. We're connected here. So how do you think Kennedy's decision to run as an independent will affect his chances at securing the White House? Well, it's definitely going to be a lot more difficult as an independent, uh, simply because you don't have the party infrastructure. Uh, ballot access is going to be much more difficult. But, you know, ultimately, he didn't really have a choice. Uh, the Democratic Party didn't really give him a fair shake, despite the fact that he was polling at about 20 percent among Democrat voters. Uh, the, the party infrastructure did not want to put Biden in that position. So there were no, no debates, uh, no official primary. And uh, so he really had no choice. And so that's why he's going with this independent run. You talk about him getting his name on the ballot in all 50 states. Do you think he'll have a challenge doing that? 
absolutely. I mean, this is one of the toughest things to do, even if you're a third party like the Libertarians or the Reform Party, uh, always a challenge to get all 50. Now he's an independent, so he's got to do it himself with his own infrastructure. And the reality is that uh, most likely the Democratic Party, but even the Republican Party may try to limit his access in those states as well by filing challenges and all sorts of things. So, you know, depending on the state, some are easier than others, but it's going to be a real challenge. And my guess is that he will not be able to access all 50. He'll only be playing in uh, a few dozen states. He does have his work cut out for him there. So if Trump and Biden do secure each of their party's nomination, how will Kennedy's run as a third party candidate affect their chances? It's going to be fascinating. Uh, polls so far have kind of shown it's been a wash. Uh, he seems to take voters from both Trump and Biden, but he is polling in the teens. Uh, so we'll, we'll see on that. I think it's it's you know, prognostication uh, this early is always silly, but, uh, you know, I think he's going to be a force. The reality is he's a, a populist candidate who appeals to, to voters who feel like they've been disenfranchised by both parties. And uh, because of that, he's going to have a real shot at, at playing spoiler uh, next November. Yeah, and Democrat strategist Brad Brannon, he said that Kennedy's anti-vaccine rhetoric could plausibly make him take as much votes away from Trump as he does from Biden. So now Kennedy spoke of a new declaration of independence, as we mentioned. Will this appeal to voters more or less than the MAGA slogan by Trump and Biden's message of battling for the soul of the nation? I, I think this is something that third party and independent candidates always run on. And you have to be honest about the results, right? We had Ross Perot in 1992, who was kind of a special instance uh, where a lot of Republicans abandoned George H.W. Bush at the time. Uh, but typically, third parties don't do that well in this country. We, we do kind of have this head-to-head -head between Republicans and Democrats. And so my guess is that even though I think he'll be formidable, uh, you know, ultimately, it's, it's, it's not going to be, you know, more than 6 7% at the most. Uh, and so it's going to be hard for him to really win. But I, I think he's, again, he's going to affect these races. I mean, we saw between Biden and Trump how close this election was last go around, and we're going to get the rematch. So we can anticipate another you know, uh, late election night and, and I guess, you know, long election week. And Kennedy's obviously going to play a role in that. Yeah, and it is partly surprising, given his family's longstanding ties to the Democrat Party. But we'll see how this plays out. John, it was great talking with you. John Chweppe, the director of the Policy of American Principles Project, thank you. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a senior Hamas leader denies Iran and Hezbollah's direct involvement in its attack, but says they are ready to join its battle if Israel retaliates in force. Who is providing funding and backing for Hamas, and what will happen in Gaza next? We bring in an expert to tackle those questions and more. Welcome back. Israel has declared war to annihilate Hamas in response to its brutal terror attack. But what exactly is Hamas? Entities Daniel Monahan has some background information on the terrorist organization. Hamas carried out an unprecedented attack on Saturday, launching rockets into Israel and invading it, killing men, women and children, raping women and taking hostages. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed vengeance. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. Netanyahu promised to find Hamas in all the places it hides and turn them into ruins. But what is Hamas? 
Hamas has been designated a terrorist organization by countries around the world, including the US, the EU, the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada. It was created by Ahmed Yassin and six other Muslims in 1987. It is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, an extremist organization that has expressed hostility towards Israel and the West. Hamas stands for Islamic Resistance Movement. The National Counterterrorism Center says it has between 20 and 25,000 members. Terrorist members wear a green headband, and the group has both a military as well as a political unit. Hamas's charter calls for the Jewish state to be wiped off the map. Hamas took power in Gaza in 2006 after winning an election that has been contested for its lack of integrity. The terror group is known for using civilian centers in Gaza, including hospitals and schools, to launch rockets into Israel. It also uses civilians as human shields when targeted by Israeli forces. Hamas is known to receive financial and other support from Iran, a state sponsor of terrorism. The Wall Street Journal also reported on October 8th that Iran helped Hamas plan the attacks and gave it the green light to execute them. According to a Foundation for Defense of Democracies report, Iran has built a network of at least 19 armed groups on Israel's borders. The biggest ones are Hamas and Islamic Jihad, based in Gaza, and Hezbollah, based in Lebanon. These groups and others receive funding, training, and weapons from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Qatar is also accused of being a major supporter of Hamas, and that's where Hamas's leader, Ismail Haniya, currently resides. Qatar denies these allegations. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Concerns over a two-front war for Israel are on the rise. Iran-backed Hezbollah crossed the Lebanon-Israel border to the north and staged an attack on Israel. One Israeli officer was killed and more soldiers wounded in the cross-border raid Sunday. Israel responded with shelling into southern Lebanon, killing at least three Hezbollah members yesterday. Hezbollah used missiles and mortars to target two Israeli command centers in northern Israel, making direct hits, according to state media. Hezbollah said the attacks were in response to fighters killed by Israel's shelling. And next, we're taking a look at Israel's first line of defense against terrorist groups, the Iron Dome, with a past success rate over 90 percent. Analysts say it saved countless civilian lives over the last decade. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg explains how the Iron Dome works. The Iron Dome targets short-range unguided rockets that remain at low altitudes, the type often fired by Hamas terrorists. The missile defense system developed by Rafael Advanced Defense Systems is equipped with three to four maneuverable launchers that fire interceptor Tamir missiles. The system is mobile and can be set up in just a few hours on ships or land. Strategic placement provides a defense barrier for up to 60 square miles of Israel's populated areas. So how's it work? The system's radar detects incoming rockets within two and a half to 43 miles. It then uses a command and control system to quickly calculate the projectile's path. The control center looks at the predicted location of impact and checks for populated areas. Rockets posing the greatest threat are prioritized when multiple targets are detected. According to Raytheon and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, 10 land-based Iron Dome batteries are deployed across Israel. Operating costs can add up during wartime, with each missile costing around $40,000. Israel's multi-tier air defense also includes David's Sling for medium-range rockets and ballistic missiles, and the Arrow to intercept long-range missile attacks. 
The U.S. government has spent over $1.5 billion on the Iron Dome program and related research. The Center for Strategic and International Studies says over half of the system's components are currently manufactured in the U.S. Israel is expected to request additional interceptors, among other military assistance from Washington, after the recent terrorist attack. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. As the majority of Congress continues to express bipartisan support for Israel, members of the progressive left squad are calling for restraint. Representatives Cory Bush and Rashida Tlaib blamed U.S. military aid for playing a part in the conflict and called to end U.S. support. Some world leaders have also called for restraint from both sides. And today's Tiffany Meyer spoke with the managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, who said restraint is exactly the wrong response. Take a look. Restraint is how you lose wars. Nobody calls for restraint with Ukraine. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, says restraint from Israel against the Hamas terrorist group endangers the entire region and impacts Jews worldwide. He rebuffed calls for Israel to show restraint and any declarations of support for Hamas. They, they act like they're saying a neutral diplomatic thing, that both sides should exercise restraint. Of course, they only do this after the catastrophic terror atrocity, whatever that might be, which in this case uh, amounts to the largest massacre of Jews since the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, that's what just transpired in Israel. So when they call for restraint now, they're basically saying that Israel shouldn't do everything it can do to neutralize the Hamas terror organization, to just punish them a little bit and then allow them to regroup, rearm, and find new ways to do new atrocities the next time. Menken says it's been proven Hamas cannot coexist beside Israel and has genocide in its charter. What just happened is Israel's 9-11, though when you consider that it is a country of only 9 million people, as compared to the 330 million people in the United States, it's as if 40,000 Americans had died. I mean, that is the proportion of the tragedy, that literally almost everyone in Israel knows somebody who was murdered just a few days ago. And as a result of that, you don't have a, a society anymore that is, that is willing to put up with this delusional pipe dream of, of living side by side with Hamas, the terror organization, and its Palestinian Authority cheering section. The rabbi says groups supporting Hamas that claim Israel has forced Palestinians to live in an open-air prison for over two decades are either uneducated on Middle Eastern history or deliberately lying. Democratically, the people of Gaza chose Hamas, the genocidal terror organization, to lead them. So that just sends a message of its own, obviously. But the the idea that this was an open-air prison, first of all, that never happened. There are luxury hotels in Gaza. There are markets filled with, with food. There's all kinds of opportunities for people in Gaza. But second of all, it's not Israel that's controlling all the borders. Egypt has a border with Gaza as well. It reminds us that half the architects of Hitler's final solution had PhDs, were academics. Mencken says for there to be peaceful relations in Gaza, Israel needs to win the war against Hamas. Palestinian supporters in the Big Apple this weekend cheered the massacre at the music festival in Israel. The New York City protest was organized by the Democratic Socialists of America. 
Six U.S. House representatives are members of that group, including those in the so-called squad. The protest called the All Out for Palestine took place in Times Square and then headed to the Israeli consulate. One of the speakers described how Hamas terrorists broke through the fence near the festival, to which the crowd erupted in cheers. The speaker then spoke reverently about how the terrorists kidnapped several dozen people at the dance festival, to which the crowd again erupted into cheers. The speakers seemed to mock the rave attendees by calling them hipsters. At least 260 people were massacred at the festival. Many women were raped as well. There were reports of some women being sexually assaulted next to the dead bodies of their murdered friends. And cities across the U.S. are preparing for the worst. Since Hamas attacked Israel over the weekend, the FBI has urged local law enforcement to boost security around Jewish institutions. Entity's Arlene Richards has more. Fighting between Hamas and Israel isn't affecting security in the U.S. yet but the FBI and Homeland Security aren't taking any chances. The agencies have issued public safety concern bulletins to state and local law enforcement officials to boost security around Jewish religious institutions, particularly in cities with the largest Jewish communities and histories of anti-Semitic incidents. New York City's Mayor Eric Adams said in a statement that he won't let cowardly terrorists undo peace in Jewish communities. He said he has directed the NYPD to deploy additional resources to Jewish communities and houses of worship citywide to ensure that our communities have the resources they need to make sure everyone feels safe. Adams said there was no credible threat to New York City at this time. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has said she's working with officials in New York and Jerusalem to help bring back New Yorkers currently in Israel. She told CNN that New York State Police are coordinating with local law enforcement to ensure safety in Jewish communities. But a rabbi in Salt Lake City said he was forced to stop services Sunday due to a bomb threat. Everybody to calmly please exit the building and go to Tanner Park. Thank you. Members of the synagogue were forced to evacuate. Video footage of the evacuation was posted on Facebook. The congregation's rabbi, Sam Spector, told CNN that his staff received an email saying there was a bomb in the building and that bombs had been placed in other Jewish centers around Utah. While members of the synagogue were upset by the threat, no one was hurt. The Salt Lake City FBI office has said they are aware of the incident, but they have no information of specific or credible threats. Some Jewish organizations are taking their own precautions. The Jewish Federation, which represents over 350 communities across North America, said in an email that they have the largest campaign in history to secure all of their communities. A spokesperson told Insider that their security team has coordinated with local law enforcement and key partners, but currently there are no known credible threats. Just ahead, will escalating conflict in the Middle East bring a rise in oil prices? We bring in the host of NTD Business to give us the details. U.S. law enforcement ramping up security to guard against potential threats to Jewish communities across the country. That's coming up.
It's good to have you back with us. Oil prices surged, this on fears that the conflict in Israel could threaten supply. Military conflict could entangle the entire region of oil-producing nations. Here with us live is Entity Business host Don Ma. Don, good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Evelyn. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing good. good. It's good to see you. <laughs> yeah, great so, to see you as always. So how much have oil prices risen? So, Kevin, oil prices surged uh, 4% on Monday. It's uh, crude uh, oil uh, prices sitting at around $86 per barrel, per barrel right now. But, Kevin, you know, you really hit the nail on the head here that indeed uh, when it comes to uh, whether uh, major oil producing uh, countries will become involved in, in this conflict is key to whether uh, oil prices will surge, you know. Uh, and this is how investors feel at the moment here because oil supply is really the only thing of consequence uh, in this in this conflict uh, when it comes to whether it will impact the U.S. Uh, in the economic front. Uh, and this is proven, you know, by the stock market yesterday. Wall Street's major indexes actually closed higher. And what that means is investors are much more focused on U.S.-centric matters, uh, like, uh, for example, actions from the Federal Reserve and what they might do. Uh, but Kevin, right now, the impact on supply and, and demand is pretty much zero so far with what we've seen uh, with the war. You know, really, the surge in price that we're seeing right now um, is simply a result you know, of investors worried of a potential of a shock to supply. So, you know, nothing happening right now as, as, as of uh, what we've seen. So when you are saying, well, I guess that, that let's hope nothing else will happen, but when you're saying um, right now none of these countries are involved in the war, thankfully, which countries are you keeping your eyes on right now? So, you know, Evelyn, one of the risks here for oil prices uh, is between tensions with Israel and Iran. Uh, and it's important how that plays out because analysts are saying if a clear link to Iran is found uh, in terms of the attack in Israel, um, you know, it's possible that some kind of intervention by the United States could happen and we can't rule that fact out and you know if that happens that will likely entail in uh, tighter enforcement of existing sanctions on Iran's uh, oil exports and you know if if Washington decide, decides to do that um, the sanctions uh, with the current flows to the oil market might be compromised the global oil market that is and you know airlines have canceled or cut back on flights uh, because of that, uh, I, I've, I've mentioned this yesterday as well. So, you know, the impact here is really, uh, I think personally, whether Iran will be involved and whether uh, the U.S. will put sanctions on Iran. So, Don, now that we have you here, just give us some insight. So if the investors have these fears, what do they do? Do they buy? Do they sell the oil? Well, it's, it's all a matter of supply and demand, right? When, when investors think uh, the supply is going to go down, obviously that's going to put prices up because when you have fewer of something the prices for that thing will go up so if investors are worried that uh you know there's going to be oil uh supply shocks obviously you know the prices will be going up um that it's a, it's a simple function of supply and demand here but nothing really has happened this is 
uh, simply pricing in potential risks. Yeah, and Don, this is very important to point out because the oil price spike that we saw after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that did involve oil producing countries. But here in this Israel conflict, is at least, at least so far, Iran, Saudi Arabia are not involved. And of course, that region does contain this oil choke point, the Strait of Hormuz. So hopefully all those things remain intact and aren't caught up in this conflict because we don't want to have to pay more at the pump here. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it all depends on, you know, whether this conflict uh, is contained or it expands into other countries. But, you know, Kevin, the good news, I think, here is that we've seen uh, talks of potential uh, truce between uh, the two sides here. Um, I mean, we have to wait and see how that plays out. But, you know, this is a good sign for potentially th this conflict not expanding. Thank you for that good news, Don. That's very reassuring. Hopefully that does become a reality. Yes. Thank you, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you as always. And now we are heading to the UK next to Malcolm Hudson for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. Australian police said they were investigating a pro-Palestinian protest outside the Sydney Opera House. It came after footage emerged of some attendees appearing to chant anti-Semitic slogans at the demonstration. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese called the reports horrific. The Kremlin rejects Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's claim that Russia wants to exploit the crisis in Israel following Saturday's attacks by Hamas. Zelensky said yesterday it's in Russia's interest to stoke war in the Middle East to weaken global unity. President Tsai Ing-wen said Taiwan seeks peaceful coexistence with China with free and unrestricted interaction, but adds the island will be democratic for generations to come. It was Tsai's last National Day speech, as she cannot stand again as president at elections in January. She has repeatedly offered talks with China, which has rejected them as it views her as a separatist. The Netherlands and Canada took serious government to the United Nations' highest court. They accused Damascus of massive human rights violations against its own people. Those include torture, murder, sexual assault, forcible disappearance and chemical weapon attacks. Scientists are predicting more than 75% of the world's yet-to-be-discovered plants are already threatened with extinction, and nearly half of all known flowering plant species could be under threat. The warning comes in a new report published from scientists at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in London. That's all from me. Back to you both. Yeah, really, with the war, it seems like you see all these anti-Semitism, um, anti-Semitism basically boiling to the boiling to the top and coming out again. Yeah, hopefully people in Times Square, like we've seen these protests, can voice their grievances in a peaceful manner and not resort to any type of violence. Right, right. And including, you know, things that we have seen in Britain, in the UK, and all actually pretty much around, uh, around the world at this point. Yes, a lot of people chiming in here. Very serious. So we're going to break now. Civilians are currently still being held hostage by the Hamas terrorist group. A desperate mother pleads for the safe return of her family. Stay tuned for that story in a moment.
Welcome back. We are continuing with coverage of Israel's war with Hamas. In the wake of the Hamas attacks in Israel, many Americans have been reported missing and may be hostages. Among those missing are a Chicago area mother and daughter. Judith Ty Ranan and Natalie Ranan were in Israel visiting relatives at a kibbutz when Hamas attacked it on Saturday. No one has heard from them since. The family believes they are hostages of Hamas. They're in contact with the U.S. Embassy. A mother in Tel Aviv shares videos posted online by Hamas of her daughters being held hostage. The desperate mother is now pleading for their return. Here's her story. Mayan Zin is one of the mothers whose children were abducted by Hamas. She's been scrolling online looking at hostage videos, searching for new pictures of her captured daughters. My sister sent me a photo of my older daughter, Daphna, sitting on a mattress in Gaza. She saved it on her phone. It was posted by Hamas. The writing in Arabic says, dress her in prayer clothes. It's better. I thought at first that it was some kind of Photoshop that Arabs did. I didn't think such a thing could be possible. Mayan was shocked when she later saw this 30-minute-long Hamas video live-streamed on Facebook. Her former husband, Noam, has a leg wound and is taken away. Armed gunmen questioned his partner, Dikla, her son, Tomer, and Mayan's two terrified daughters. They're my whole life. They're everything I wanted all my life. This is my existence, to be a mother. It's all I wanted. I didn't want to be rich. I didn't want to be married. I didn't want anything. I wanted to be a mom. Mayan has given DNA samples to authorities, but has heard nothing since then. She is desperate and just wants her daughters and all the hostages returned. I hope my daughters are watching this and I'm sending them a hug. I believe everyone will return. And for Noam and Dikla to know that we are here, the whole family together, supporting each other, cooperating and working together to get them back. Hopefully somehow her daughters will be released from the terrorists' hands and their family reunited. Yeah, I can only imagine how that would be. Also finding out online through videos because you don't know if they're dead or alive. Well, yeah, hopefully, well, our hearts are definitely with those that are still missing in the families. And at this point, we want to kick off the second part of our broadcast. The latest updates on the Israel-Hamas war. We look at the U.S. response and we hear from a reporter on the ground in Israel. At least 11 Americans are confirmed dead in the Hamas terror attack in Israel. We examine the U.S. response and the reactions of those in power. The U.S. plans to send aid to Israel for their war against Hamas. We bring in an expert to help unpack the details. The House is in turmoil as the Republican Party struggles to find a new speaker. Will they elect a new leader in time to send critical aid to Israel? Pumpkin enthusiasts gather for the annual Safeway World Championship Pumpkin Way Off as contestants attempt to break the record for world's heaviest pumpkin.
To those just joining us, good morning. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. We I wonder how they make those pumpkins so big and how they don't crush under their own weight. That is a very good question. I have never looked into that. Nature. But maybe we will find out. <laughs> but first, of course, uh, we have some serious news to get to. President Biden will deliver remarks on the Israel-Hamas war from the White House today. Biden said yesterday American citizens may be among the hostages. And inside Israel, more than 100 bodies found in kibbutz beer after the terrorist attack. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Israel's ambassador to the UN said destroying Hamas is the focus for Israel. The country has imposed what it calls a complete siege of the Gaza Strip with a land, air and sea blockade. All food, water, electricity and fuel to the area has been cut off. And I spoke with Dor Levinter from Epic Israel near Tel Aviv earlier. He spoke to survivors. Well, the battles still continue. Israel mostly struck from the air and uh, still trying to clear all the terror uh, attacks and terrorists inside the southern uh, cities of uh, Israel. And uh, that's the situation right now. So how is Israel? Because we just heard um, Hamas, for example, threatening to publicly execute those hostages if um, Gaza is being bombed without warning, and also Gaza being such a densely populated place. How is Israel responding in this case? How is uh, how is Israel dealing with this? Okay, so Israel cannot negotiate on hostages. There is no one to negotiate with. Right now Israel is trying to push Hamas to hurt Hamas as much as possible. In a few days we, we would probably see a ground attack too. Uh, getting inside Gaza, but there is no real negotiation until Hamas, uh, from Israel perspective, will beg to do negotiation uh, on those hostages. There is nothing really to do here. And I want to go back to um, something you said earlier that right now there is no negotiations also uh, about the hostages. So I understand that you had also uh, interviewed survivors of the day of the attack. So what did they tell you? Yeah, I interviewed survivors and fighters as one. Uh, survivors, it's 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 heart it's heartbreaking. They say it's 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 the Holocaust story all over again. They just came to butcher unarmed people, people with kids, with 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 babies, just uh, stayed inside rooms and and prayed to God that no, nothing will uh, will happen. But they had no control. And it happened over hours by hours because the situation was so chaotic. So the, the armed forces couldn't get there on time. There were so many places at once. We're talking about more than 1,000 terrorists probably uh, all at once coming to many towns and do it, doing this all at once. And next, we're taking a look at Israel's first line of defense against terrorist groups, the Iron Dome. With a past success rate over 90 percent, analysts say it saved countless civilian lives over the last decade. And today's Jeremy Sandberg explains how the Iron Dome works. The Iron Dome targets short-range unguided rockets that remain at low altitudes, the type often fired by Hamas terrorists. The missile defense system developed by Rafael Advanced Defense Systems is equipped with three to four maneuverable launchers that fire interceptor Tamir missiles. The system is mobile and can be set up in just a few hours on ships or land. Strategic placement provides a defense barrier for up to 60 square miles of Israel's populated areas. So how's it work? 
The system's radar detects incoming rockets within 2.5 to 43 miles, and then uses a command and control system to quickly calculate the projectile's path. The control center looks at the predicted location of impact and checks for populated areas. Rockets posing the greatest threat are prioritized when multiple targets are detected. According to Raytheon and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, 10 land-based Iron Dome batteries are deployed across Israel. Operating costs can add up during wartime, with each missile costing around $40,000. Israel's multi-tier air defense also includes David's Sling for medium-range rockets and ballistic missiles, and the Arrow to intercept long-range missile attacks. The U.S. government has spent over $1.5 billion on the Iron Dome program and related research. The Center for Strategic and International Studies says over half of the system's components are currently manufactured in the U.S. Israel is expected to request additional interceptors, among other military assistance from Washington, after the recent terrorist attack. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. It's been three days since a brutal assault was launched on Israel by the Hamas terror group, with at least 11 Americans now confirmed dead in the attack. NTD's Daniel Monahan takes a look at the U.S. response and the reactions of lawmakers. President Biden says the American people stand shoulder to shoulder with Israelis. We'll make sure that they have the help their citizens need and they can continue to defend themselves. Biden issued a statement on Monday saying at least 11 American citizens were among those killed in the brutal terror attack and that more are likely being held hostage by the Hamas terror group. One of the Americans murdered was Deborah Matthias. She was shot and killed by Hamas terrorists while shielding her teenage son from their bullets. Her husband was also killed. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said on Monday that military assistance is on the way to Israel. He did not specify what kind of equipment was being sent. A senior Defense Department official addressed their capacity to expand production and pay for such munitions. We need additional support from Congress, so I hope we'll see that soon. A new House speaker could help that along. One candidate, Representative Steve Scalise, addressed U.S. support for Israel on Monday. This is a dangerous world right now. Uh, let me say it again, we stand strongly with Israel. Scalise is competing against House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. Here's Jordan on Fox News. We need to give Israel the time, the space, the resources so that they can win and win decisively and send a message to these evil people who did this. Senator Marsha Blackburn is calling on President Biden to freeze the $6 billion ransom payment to Iran immediately, speaking on Fox News. Iran has been instrumental in playing a role in coaching and directing and giving the green light to Hamas to carry this out. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Sunday he ordered the Ford Carrier Strike Group to sail to the eastern Mediterranean to be ready to assist Israel. It is the Navy's newest and most advanced aircraft carrier. Its approximately 5,000 sailors and deck of warplanes will be accompanied by cruisers and destroyers in a show of force. The Israeli military says such naval deployments close to Israel may stave off any regional escalation. Meanwhile, gruesome discoveries continue on the ground in Israel. The rescue service retrieved over 100 bodies from the small Israeli community of Bari near the border with the Gaza Strip on Monday. The kibbutz is among the worst hit of the 14 Israeli border communities overrun by Hamas terrorists on Saturday. 
The Israeli military says between 70 and 100 terrorists in or around Bari were killed. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And joining us now for more is Brandon Weikert. He's a geopolitical analyst and a senior editor for 1945.com. Good morning. Thanks for coming on, Brandon. Now, first, I want to know from you, what do you think is the biggest worry right now for Israel? Well, I think the biggest worry right now is escalation, uh, another round of attacks, probably not from Hamas this time, but from a much bigger threat to the north, the Iranian-backed, uh, Hezbollah, which is operating out of Lebanon, and um, the fear is that that they're getting ready to do some of this kind of was an attack by Hamas to distract the Israelis for the bigger attack coming from the north by Hezbollah. As, as a distraction, so how likely do you think this is? Well, right now there's been reports coming out that there's been infiltration attempts by uh, Hezbollah military into the northern Israel. Uh, it's kind of what Hamas did in the south. Um, the Israelis have been able to stop it. Israel destroyed a uh, military convoy coming from Iran through Iraq into Syria. The concern was that it was a resupply attempt to get more weapons and ammo and maybe even more fighters into Hezbollah's ranks. So um, it's a concern. Now, they're going to stay focused on Hamas in the south because they're the ones who actually attacked. But the Israelis have got to be concerned that this is part of a larger move, not just something Hamas was doing on its own. Right. And how well, well, how would Israel be able to handle this multi-front war? And maybe in other words, what help does Israel, would Israel need from the U.S. in the coming weeks? Well, unfortunately, the U.S. is led currently by a president who's going to probably stay as far away as possible from this crisis. Um, Israel has probably the region's best air force. They could begin launching a blitz into Lebanon. Uh, maybe we've already seen they apparently, like I said, they targeted the convoy in Syria. Um, so they have capabilities in the air to take care of uh, Hezbollah to an extent. But if Hezbollah starts sending large numbers of uh, ballistic missiles, their precision-guided missiles are the real concern, Israel could have some problems, especially with all of their forces focused on the south. So America, in an ideal world, would provide intelligence and diplomatic and financial support to the Israelis, sort of like what they're doing in Ukraine. But of course, our resources are limited as well because we've drained through our, our critical weapons in Ukraine, uh, which is sort of, I think, why one of the reasons Iran did this, knowing that we're bogged down in Europe. I'd also be watching for what China will be doing to Taiwan the more we're distracted in the Middle East. Hmm. I think that's a very interesting point. They're also tying to China. China. And speaking of China, because China and Iran, we have been watching how their relationship has been warming up in the recent, uh, in, recently. So how, on top of that, they've been quiet, uh, buying quite a bit of oil, which means the uh, money flow. So how do you see China's role in this? Also considering that the U.S. is currently uh, looking at them as a peacemaker. Yeah, um, China is not a peacemaker. Remember a few months ago, the Chinese uh, came in and made this supposed deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and started uh, launching attacks and threatening uh, Israel. Um, the, the China is a destabilizing force in the region. And because of this attack by Hamas against Israel, the Saudis last night said that they stand with the Palestinians, which means that that uh, that security agreement between Israel and the Saudis has been broken. And now Saudi and Iran are linked through uh, China. 
And so China is using this to try to push the Americans out, isolate the Israelis, and take over the region at our expense in the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, you just cut off just for a couple of seconds when you mentioned something about China and how China was um, uh, talking to Saudi Arabia or like or um, creating some relationship there yeah. so that Saudi Arabia changed their um, changed their mind about um, the peace agreement with Israel, if I understood that correctly. Can you please repeat exactly what uh, what you meant? Yeah, so basically the Chinese are taking out the Americans of the region by isolating Israel, which is America's strongest partner. They've already gotten Saudi Arabia to sign a, a peace deal of sorts with Iran. Iran, of course, is China's proxy. And now they're trying to further isolate the Israelis um, uh, and with this, with this attack. And they're going to try, I think, to fully push the Americans out by going to Israel and saying, hey, we can make peace. All you have to do is turn your back on the Americans and open up your high tech sector to us. And then we can get the Iranians and their proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah, off your back. And I think Israel is in a very desperate position unless the United States acts more fully in, in support of Israel. They might not have a choice in Israel, but to work more closely with China to bring peace. Mm. That's a very interesting take on all this. Thank you so much, Brandon Weikert, Thank for you. your time this morning. Coming up, food waste and poor access to healthy ingredients. These are some threats to food security in the U.S. and worldwide. We speak to an authority on public health nutrition about what can be done to solve this problem. And in some light news, pumpkin growers gather at the annual Safeway World Championship Pumpkin Way Off. Find out which one of these monster pumpkins takes the title of the world's largest pumpkin when we come back. Good to have you back. House Republicans have big days ahead. They're meeting to pick a new speaker after voting to oust Kevin McCarthy last week. But the House is divided, and that means no business until they get a leader, even if the business is Israel. Emily Schmidt reports on the dual pressure to get a house in order and to react to what's happening in the world. Kevin McCarthy began his Monday news conference talking about helping Israel. Now is the time for action. He said the same on his social media account, but the House can't act on anything until it finds his replacement. So while some House members are circulating a pro-Israel resolution, it is stuck in limbo with no leader. First thing I will put on the floor is the, is the uh, resolution on Israel. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan is running for speaker, as is House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. They're meeting behind closed doors, trying to get support, but there's no indication either has the 217 votes needed to win. Some speculate the former speaker could reclaim his position, a long shot he hasn't ruled out. The conference decides that. I don't decide that. The Hamas attacks on Israel show what else is now on the line. The Pentagon says it needs Congress to approve more money to help Israel and Ukraine simultaneously. The first speaker vote could happen as soon as Wednesday, with a lot more than leadership riding on the outcome. Tonight, the House GOP is holding a closed-door forum where they will hear from speaker candidates. And now for a special report on food and the challenges people face accessing it, 
Worldwide, people are facing shortages of essential ingredients because countries are limiting exports. To protect their supplies from threats posed by the Ukraine war, and El Nino. Yes, and stateside, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is trying to include a $50 million initiative in the upcoming Farm Bill to improve food security and bring to an end food deserts like the one in the South Bronx. Right now, about 34 million Americans are food insecure, and we're going to hear some solutions to this problem. Take a look. I'm here in the neighborhood of Jamaica in the borough of Queens in New York City, and I'm standing in a swamp. No, not a marsh, a food swamp. It's called that because it's full of unhealthy food sources. Recently, this area reportedly had only one supermarket for every five fast food restaurants and six corner stores. We're gonna learn more about the problem of food insecurity that's impacting New Yorkers and other Americans. Now we speak to Nia T. Parekh, Professor of Public Health Nutrition at New York University. Dr. Parekh, thank you for helping us understand this complex and important issue. Thank you so much for having me. So what are the biggest challenges that New York City faces in getting this high-quality food to its residents? Uh, so I think that we kind of generally around the world are struggling with this. We have a food system that's pretty broken. Uh, the advent of industrial foods um, has been important for multiple reasons, but it's sort of gone to the other extreme, where um, several people don't have access to fresh produce and fresh foods and kind of rely on getting most of their calories from canned, packaged, and uh, industrial foods. And uh, I think access is a big issue. There's many different domains that we could really improve on. Um, there's tremendous food waste, uh, mostly in the retail and uh, at, at the consumer level in the United States. And I think that food rescuing efforts is, is a big area where we can uh, make improvements and make sure the food that actually could go on someone's plate is not being trashed. That's one really important issue here mm -hmm. is that there's about 120 billion pounds of food wasted in the United States. So how do we solve that problem? Uh, first, we need some policies that, that need to be put in place for it. Um, lots of consumer education is important in this case because there's a lot of food waste in the supermarket, you know, buying foods at home and a lot of food waste at the home level, restaurant level, um, prepared foods are being wasted. You know, a lot of people tend to buy, uh, you have buy one, get one free kind of deals. They stock up on very large portions of multiple products and then it's wasted. That's just an example of what could happen in a supermarket setting. Um, Speaking of supermarkets, we've yeah. seen actually the advent of 30 new ones in New York City after they gave these tax benefits to the store owners, helping people to get access to fresh food within walking distance. So are there any policies that can be put in place to help this? Yes, my favorite example is really Rhode Island, where they've actually encouraged local farmers and producers uh, to have their products in the supermarkets. So I think, again, one way to fix the food system and to make fresh and and local produce available is to encourage policies uh, that necessitate having certain amount of produce coming from these farmers. A city worker in the food swamp we visited offered his thoughts. Yeah, I definitely feel like it's hard to get fresh food around here due to the, you know, a lot of the fast food restaurants that's in the area. Yes, definitely more farmer stands will, mar will, will help around here because with the fast food restaurants, you know, it's very unhealthy for just, you know, for everyone. We spoke to some passers-by who echoed those ideas and offered other ones to improve access to healthy food. Definitely like third world countries and um, uh, especially areas in Detroit, you know, uh, that, and in the U.S. that there might not be easily, easily access for 
these grocery stores, uh, there has to be more of an initiative and more fun would always be helpful. There needs to be some partnership between you know government and obviously private private businesses to to work this out. And so I don't have all the answers, but I think there one of it is is to realize the fact that there is you know fast food isn't the way to go. Professor Parak suggests having deep reserves of food on hand to prevent food insecurity resulting from disasters. And the deadline for the farm bill has passed, and some are saying without it, the U.S. food system will implode. But the good news is normally Congress misses the deadline anyway, and crop support programs will continue until the end of the calendar year. And without a speaker, the farm bill has taken a further backseat, but the lawmakers say that there is progress in good shape still. Oh, I see. Well, so seems like <laughs> there is some good to that as well. Yes. Well. But, you know, I mean, the Ukraine war was apparently uh, one of the most disruptive periods for global, global food security. And then, of course, we have this um, documentary from Roman that also uh, touches on these issues uh, globally. And um, up until now, really, I think it's a, even in Germany, um, the farmers are protesting until now because they have, there, is some, there were some changes in policy and they just cannot afford to produce as much. And, and they're they getting in trouble in, uh, in this regard and f keeping to supply the people there with produce. Yes, food supply is so important that all these challenges go addressed. Yeah. And now we end the show with some lighthearted news. Guess the size of the biggest pumpkin this year. This year, the largest pumpkin weighing in at 2,749 pounds. Did you guess that? It's a new world record set by Travis Jinger a horticulture teacher for Minnesota. This monster pumpkin secured him the special prize of $30,000. Ginger has won three out of the last four weigh-offs. His massive pumpkin will be on display next weekend during Half Moon Bay's Art and Pumpkin Festival in California. Yeah, they actually need a forklift. And that is gigantic, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what they say, to grow a pumpkin like that, you need a lot of sunlight, can't have any shade and a lot of space. You need 500 square feet for the vines to grow for each plant. Wow. Yeah. I bet a lot of work in, went into that. Don't it step on any of the though. vines. You got to give that thing every chance it needs to All get right, that big. Otherwise you will hurt it. Oh man. Well, good job on that. <laughs> but at this point we are coming to the end of the, our program. As usual though, we'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So write us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.